Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. Glad you are here to worship God with us. First of all, of course, with our singing and now with the study of God's word together. If you don't know me, my name is Adam Bowers. I'm the senior pastor here at First Free Church. If you're visiting with us, we are really, really glad you are here with us this morning. Thank you for joining us. And I hope that you will be blessed this morning as we study God's word together. We have been working our way through a book called Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And we think that it was probably dictated by a man named Peter, but Mark wrote it down, so we call it Mark. And that is what we're going to continue our study of this morning. But I want to just give you a little snapshot for what the rest of the year is going to look like as well, just to kind of give you some context for where we're going so you can kind of get your bearings here. We're going to be in Mark again next week. And then starting in February, we are going to dive into a new series for us called Essentials. So Mark, for us is a study that's going to go on really until the rest of this year, but along the way to kind of break it up so that we're not always doing the same thing again and again, and it's God's word, so it's all good, and that, that should be fine, but we just know how human nature is. If we do the same kind of thing over and over again, eventually we can sort of get bored with it a little bit. It becomes a little stale to us. We don't want that to happen. So we're going to intermix with our study of Mark, some other series along the way. And this study started in February is a series called Essentials. It's a series where we are going to look at the essential things that make us followers of Jesus Christ. And we are also going to look at the things that divide us as followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, what are the things that we might disagree about? that we might divide over, that we might have some conflict over. And we're going to look at those things together starting in February, going into March. I'm really excited about it. John's going to preach some, Don's going to preach some, but I'm going to do the bulk of it. And I just cannot wait to dive into this study together. I really believe that it will be foundational for us as a church. I have seen it have incredible impact on churches. I have seen this kind of a study become something that for many years afterward provides a framework for us to interact with and engage with each other and engage with our community in ways where we are well aware of those aspects of our faith that make us similar and those aspects that make us different. Because let's face it, of all the people in this room here, there are a lot of different views on different things. And that's okay. But what do you do with that? How do you handle that? How do you talk about that? Should we just keep quiet about the different things we believe or should we talk about it? And how do we do that? That's what this series is going to be about. Along with this new series, we're planning some other stuff here that I hope you're going to be as excited about as I am. So we are working right now on a new website that we'll be launching in the near future. And we are also working on getting a live stream of the services up and running online. And what that means is for all of those who are going to listen to this later on this week on audio, you will actually be able to watch it live as you are sick at home or traveling or whatever it may be. You'll be able to actually see this service as a broadcast online. We're very excited about that. We've got all the equipment we need to do it now. We're set up to to make that happen. And we'd like to start doing that very soon. In order for that to happen, this is a new thing for us. We've never done this before. And so we're going to need some people who have some technical expertise or are willing to become technically expertised, if that's a word. If you are willing to be expertised in tech, 
we need to hear from you at production at efree.org. And that's an email address that you can email. If you are interested in helping us out with that, we need people to help run our cameras. We need people to help run the switching between the cameras and to make it all go live online. And then we're also, of course, going to have those videos available on our website afterwards. So if you want to go watch a service or send one to a friend, you'll actually be able to see it, see the visuals, see everything that's going on instead of just listening to it. So I'm very excited about that. Every week people come up to me and say, we wish we could have watched online or we wish we could see it. Uh, because we're homesick and now you will be able to, but we need your help to make it happen. So we want to get that up and running in time for this new Essentials series that's coming in a couple of weeks. But today we're going to continue in our study of Mark. So if you want to open your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark, we're going to get into that in just a minute here. But to start things off, I'm going to do something a little bit different. We're going to, we're going to talk about something Very challenging, I think, to talk about in church. Because when we come to church, we kind of have this sense that we're supposed to put our game face on, right? We're supposed to look happy, like things are going well. I was talking with somebody this morning and asked them how they were doing. And and the first answer I lost was, mouth was great, great. And then immediately they went, well, not so great. And that's, that's the reality of our lives, right? As people, we, we come to church and we think we're supposed to answer, everything's fine, everything's good, everything's great. And the reality is a lot of times we're struggling with stuff. We're struggling with things. And we want to come to church and put on our game face, but the truth is this of all places should be a place where we can have conversations about things that we wrestle with and feel that it's safe and feel that it's okay to talk about things that Maybe we don't feel comfortable talking about anywhere else. And that's, that's something that I'm excited about. Having some of those conversations with you where we as a church can talk about what is something that we really wrestle with, that we struggle with, maybe even that's considered taboo, maybe something that we don't talk about very much, especially as, as good Christian people that go to church. But God's word talks about it. God's word enlightens us for how we are supposed to live our lives and think and understand. And so today, the subject that I want to talk with you about is doubt. I want to talk to you about doubt. How many of you at some point in your life have struggled with doubts of some kind? Okay, so some of you. How many of you really struggle with knowing and doubted whether you should raise your hand in that moment? (laughs) Is it okay? Is anybody else doing it? You're looking around. The truth is that everyone struggles with doubt. Everyone, not one of us can say that we are 100% confident all the time. We all wrestle with doubt. Or another way to put that is we all wrestle with unbelief because that's what doubt is. It's struggling with knowing whether we should believe something and so we doubt it. Here's how the dictionary defines doubt. Uncertainty about the truth, factuality, or existence of something. That's doubt. In other words, to doubt is to say, I'm not sure if I really believe this. I'm not sure if I really believe this, or I know I should believe this, but I'm struggling right now. Maybe you had the privilege over the holidays of getting together with some family, and everybody brings a dish, and you put it on the table, and you go through the buffet line, and everybody kind of picks stuff, and you come across a dish that, as far as you're concerned, is of questionable eatability. (laughs) You doubt whether this thing is going to be good for your system, your stomach, your sanity, whatever it may be. And you are about to pass by that dish and someone behind you says, oh, you have to try the cranberry gravy goop. That's my specialty. (laughs) And now you are stuck in this moment of decision 
do I risk trying some of this stuff that I seriously doubt is actually edible? It's going to congeal in my stomach and I don't know if it's going to kill me or something. How many of you have ever been skydiving? You're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. Uh, how many of you have ever been bungee dumping, jumping? Bungee jumping. Okay, some of you, that's, I don't know how that's any less crazy. That's still crazy. How many of you have ever done a trust fall? You know, one of those things where you get up on a pole and your friends are supposed to catch you and they may or they may not and you fall back and hopefully they, you, they, you trust them enough. When you are standing in that plane or standing on that post about to jump or standing where you're going to fall and, and hopefully people are going to catch you, there is a, a moment there where you are wrestling with doubt and you got yourself all psyched up for this and you could have prepared for this. You could have trained for this. You could have gone to the factory where they manufactured the parachute to see how safe it is or seen how they manufacture the bungee cords with all these different strands to keep you safe so your heads don't hit the rocks below. You could have gone through extensive training and research and have all the evidence you need. You could know these friends like they're your family and know that they're going to catch you. And still, when you get up to that moment of do I take this leap of faith, there is often going to be a time of doubt in the moment of decision. Or even though you know you should believe, you still struggle to believe that you can take that leap. Fear can take over for us. Distractions, things that, that cause us to want to do something else. And you have to decide, am I going to choose to believe or allow this doubt to hold me back? And it's a part of being human. It's, a, it's something that all of us struggle with. Everyone struggles with doubt of one kind or another. And it could be doubts about your marriage. Are we really going to make it as a couple? If you're single, it could be doubts about whether you're going to get married. And that might be a preoccupation for you. It could be doubts about your job or your parenting or something else going on in your life right now. But we all struggle with doubt. And the doubt that is most challenging, I think, is spiritual doubt when we have doubts about our faith. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. A couple different ways. I'm going to divide this into two categories. The first one is going to be doubts about God. And the second one is doubting God. And what do I mean by this? Doubts about God and doubting God. Doubts about God. Maybe you're not sure if you believe anymore. I know that's weird to say in church. I know we're all supposed to act like we just believe, believe, believe. We just sang about that. I believe in you, I believe you rose again. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, I believe will rise again. All that stuff. I know we just said we believe, believe, believe. But let's just be honest here. Sometimes we wrestle with unbelief. Sometimes we wrestle with doubt and maybe that's you. Maybe you grew up in church your whole life. Or maybe you've been in church a long time. Maybe you've read the Bible. Maybe you've gone through all this stuff and, and you, you think to yourself, man, I ought to just have this confident, solid belief in God, but I'm struggling. I'm wrestling with it right now. I'm wrestling with doubts about God. There's another kind of doubt. I'm calling that doubting God. And that's when you believe in God and you, and you, you believe he exists and you believe that, that he's out there and he's, he's created this world, but you're doubting whether he listens to you. You're doubting whether he cares about you. You're doubting whether he has an interest in your life. You're doubting him because of things that have happened lately for you. Maybe a difficult situation you're dealing with. Maybe the loss of a loved one. God, why would you take this person away from me? God, why would you allow me to face this trial in my life? And so you are having doubts about God or doubting God. Spiritual doubt 
is some of the most challenging doubt that we have to wrestle with. And I'm sure a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you're there right now. And I just want to reiterate, you're not alone. Everyone struggles with doubt. It's something that we all have to wrestle with. And it's something, fortunately for us, that God includes in the Bible for us to learn from. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9. But before we dive into our text for today, I want to show you something really interesting. See, for the last couple of months as we've looked at Mark chapter 8, and now we're diving into Mark 9, there has been a thread of dealing with doubt woven into these stories that you may or may not have noticed. And I want to point it out to you so you can see this. In Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, Jesus says he wants to feed thousands of people and his disciples say in verse four, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? They were doubting whether or not we could actually get done what Jesus said he wants to get done. In verses 11 through 13, Jesus is met by some Pharisees who demand a miraculous sign as proof of Jesus' authority. And he rebukes them and says, I'm not gonna give you any sign. The Pharisees doubted about Jesus. In verses 14 through 21, the disciples are arguing because of a lack of food. And Jesus says, don't you get it yet? Didn't you see when I fed the 4,000, when I fed the 5,000, and here you are arguing about this lack of food? I can provide. Haven't you seen this? I can provide. But they doubted. And Jesus is frustrated with them. And he warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees and their doubtful teaching. In verses 22 through 25 of Mark 8, Jesus heals a blind man in two stages. At first, he heals him partially. And this is symbolic of the disciples who believed to an extent, but didn't fully understand. They didn't fully see Jesus clearly. And so we have this really interesting real life parable of Jesus healing someone partially and then healing him fully, just as the disciples have known partially and in the future will know fully. And Jesus then goes on to teach them more about him so they can understand him more clearly. In verses 27 through 30, Jesus then asks his disciples plainly, who do you think I am? What do you believe about me? To question them. And Peter says for the first time, you are the Messiah. Now they're starting to see the real Jesus. Now they know there's something more special about this man, but they will still wrestle with doubt for a long time. Last week, Don preached, and he preached from the end of chapter 8. He talked about Jesus telling the disciples that he would soon suffer and die. And you remember, he talked about writing a letter back to himself, the, the dear former me. And if Peter were to do this, and Peter telling himself, don't question Jesus on this, that was foolish. But Peter struggled with doubts. And so when Jesus said he would suffer and die, what did Peter say? No, 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 don't say that. No, no, no. That's not what messiahs are supposed to do. And Peter doubted Jesus. uh, Jesus then rebukes Peter. And he says, if you want to be my follower, my disciple, you have to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. Now, this is really interesting because Jesus had not died on the cross yet. And so here he is teaching about a cross. He hasn't died on a cross yet. 
And he says, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, you have to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. Now, a lot of people take this take up your cross thing and think that it's because they can't find the right type of shoes or they don't have the food that they want or it's just my cross to bear. Let me tell you, that is not your cross to bear. Here's what Jesus meant by that. If you want to be my follower, you have to be willing to pick up a method of execution, put it on your back and walk around and carry on with it. You have to be willing to die for this. That's how serious the faith you have needs to be. That's how much confidence you need to have in this. If you're going to be my disciple, if we were to put this in modern day terms, this is kind of grim, but it's, it's the best analogy I can think of. It would be like saying to someone, you're going to have to carry an electric chair around with you everywhere you go and be ready for someone to execute you for following me. That's how serious, that's how trusting, that's how much faith and confidence you need to have if you're going to be effective as my disciple. And that's what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross and follow me. That's the confidence that you have to have. Next week, we're going to study doubt a little bit more. We're going to study the story of a man who comes to Jesus with a problem, a big problem. And Jesus says, you don't have the faith. And the man says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. One of the most amazing statements of honesty and authenticity in the Bible. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I love that. So the central theme of these passages here that's woven throughout is really doubt. The doubt of the people, the doubt of the Pharisees, the doubt of the disciples, Jesus teaching and preparing, and he wants to get his disciples ready for what is ahead because they are going to face difficult times. They are going to face doubts and frustrations and fears and challenges, and he wants to get them ready for this. They are going to be the leaders of his movement after he's gone, and they need to be ready to handle the doubts and fears that they're going to face. Now, when I preach, I'm always trying to find some kind of a key takeaway some kind of phrase or sentence or a couple of points or something that can kind of become sticky where you're going to remember it. It's going to be like a, a memory device for you. And you're going to walk away and who knows, maybe, maybe this week, maybe next month, maybe months or years later, you're going to be dealing with a challenging situation and this phrase is going to pop into your head. And the idea there is that this memory device will then help you come back to biblical principles that we're talking about for dealing with doubt in difficult times. And so I'm going to go ahead and give you the main point for today, the main takeaway, because I want you to be looking for it in our text this morning. And here it is. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. How many of you have heard that phrase before? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Okay, so there is a little bit of a line that's, that corresponds directly to age for the people that raised their hand and didn't raise their hand. <laughs> Let me explain this. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure means better to prepare for a challenge than to wait and try to solve it after it comes. It's better to prepare for a challenge now, an ounce of prevention, than to try to solve a challenge after it comes. It's better than a pound of cure. That's how important it is. Benjamin Franklin used this phrase when he was trying to convince the people of Philadelphia to create a fire department. Now, they had some fire departments, but here's how it worked. They had private fire departments. And if you were wealthy enough, you could afford to subscribe. It's like subscribing to Amazon. You subscribed to your fire department. And if you were a subscriber and you had enough money that you could do that and your house caught on fire, then the fire brigade would come with their buckets and they would come and help put out the fire at your house. If you were not a subscriber, guess what? 
you were out of luck. Your house burned down. But as soon as that fire burned down your house and spread through the the yard or the trees or whatever and made its way to a house that was a subscriber, well, they got the buckets and people would come and they'd put out their fire because they had subscribed. They paid for the service. And so Benjamin Franklin said, you know what? That's all good and well. But what if we get a fire that gets going in some of these uninsured houses and eventually it gets so big that we can't deal with it and the entire city burns down? That stuff happens, especially back in this day and age when there were no steel buildings. Everything's constructed of burnable materials. And so he said, we need to create a fire department, not one of these private ones. We need a universal fire department. And he wrote a letter to the newspaper and they published it out there. He wrote it anonymously, but we know it was him. And in that letter, the main point was an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. In other words, if we will do something now, invest time, money, resources, energy into creating a fire department, that is going to be far less of an investment, far better an investment than if we wait and have to deal with rebuilding the city later because the whole thing burns down. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I want to modify this for us today. I want to tweak that a little bit. Here's what I'm going to say for this morning. When it comes to doubt, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. When it comes to doubt, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Be looking for that this morning as we study God's word. Before we do that, let's just take a moment and bow our heads and ask God for wisdom as we study his word together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, we are so privileged to be able to study it this morning and every day. And I pray that you would teach us through it, Lord, not just through the words that I say, but Lord, as each person in this room is looking at your word and studying it and trying to wrestle with how it applies to their own life, Lord, I pray that you would give wisdom and insight and that we would take this and that it wouldn't just be for here and now, but that it would impact our everyday lives, Lord. Help us as we wrestle with and deal with issues of doubt. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles if you haven't already, to the book of Mark. And if you want to follow along in an app, the YouVersion Bible app has all of our scriptures in there. You can follow there. If you go to the events page and then click on First Free Church, you'll get all of that. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, but you'd still like to check it out, go to efree.org Bible and you'll find the app there. You'll find instructions on how to get all of this up on your device if you're not going to use a paper Bible. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. This is where we left off from last week. Don talked about Mark 8 through 9, 1. And this week we are in Mark 9, 2 through verse 9. We're going to start in verse 2. Read along with me here. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed. His clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. This event, pause there for a moment, because this event is something we call the transfiguration. Transfiguration, or the word that's used here is Jesus' appearance was transformed, comes from the word where we get the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is a change, and the root word here in the Greek also refers to that change, metamorphothe. It's a change. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12 when he's describing the fact that our inward minds need to be transformed. They need to be renewed. We need to think differently. And so he uses the same root word, in this case it's metamorphothe, and he talks about the fact that our inward self needs to be transformed. It needs to be different. 
Here this word is used of Jesus to describe his outward appearance. Outwardly, he was transformed. We call it the transfiguration. And in this moment, Peter, James, and John get to go with Jesus in this sort of private excursion up a mountain, traditionally Mount Tabor, probably really it was Mount Hermon. They get to go up this mountain for this private viewing of Jesus in his true glory. And that opens up some some interesting questions for us, some interesting thoughts Fortunately, the other Gospels also write about this event, Matthew and Luke. John does not, but Matthew and Luke write about this, and they give us extra little bits of detail. For instance, at some point in here, Luke tells us that the disciples, before Jesus was transformed, actually fell asleep, and they woke up and Jesus was being transformed. So when they woke up, Jesus is transformed to reveal this heavenly glory that he had concealed in his earthly form. Matthew tells us, that Jesus' face was like the sun. And I was talking about this with my wife last night and she made me think of the, the sunrise in the morning. You think about a beautiful sunrise with the sun coming up over the curvature of the earth and you know the, that bright white light is actually made up of all the different colors of light and so when it hits the atmosphere and the light diffuses in different ways, we get this broad spectrum of colors. Same thing as a sunset. And you get this amazing, glorious view in the morning and the evening and Matthew says that's what Jesus' face looked like. It looked like the sun. His clothes were this bright white. The analogy that Mark uses is to say that no earthly bleach could get it any whiter. Or literally what he says is no professional launderer could make this any whiter. His clothes were so white, so bright. And the disciples, remember, have been wrestling with doubts about Jesus. Specifically Peter. And now Jesus takes them up to see his glory, the, the light, the brightness. Can you imagine how incredible this must have been for them? Just picture, if you can, the best job you can. Jesus' glory. What an incredible experience that must have been. And then look at verse 4 with me. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Now, whenever I study a passage... I'm always asking a lot of questions as I go. That for me is the most powerful method for me to study the Bible is I'm asking questions constantly, especially as I'm preparing to preach. But even in my just regular personal study, I'm looking for questions to explore. And I have a lot of them with this passage. Here are some of mine so far. Why did Jesus take Peter, James, and John with him to witness this? Why those three guys? Why did they get this private viewing of what's going on there? Why is it that Moses and Elijah show up here? Why does Jesus take them up on a mountain? And when we read looking for questions like this, it helps to to get our curiosity up. It helps us to get us into the text more to see if we can find answers. And we pay closer attention. So one of my questions in studying this passage was this. What were Elijah and Moses talking about with Jesus. As I read this in preparation for preaching today, I went, come on, Mark. You say that they're talking with Jesus. Why don't you tell us what they're talking about? Wouldn't you like to know what these two guys, these two incredibly important biblical figures are talking about with Jesus? And here is why I love the fact that we have these other gospels. There are three summary gospels, synoptic gospels they're called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, of course, is a very different type of gospel, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record a lot of the same stuff. And and praise the Lord, Luke tells us what they were talking about. Look at Luke chapter 9, 
verse 30. Suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. So far that's the same. They were glorious to see. Mark didn't tell us that. Moses and Elijah were also glorious in their appearance. And they were speaking about his exodus from the world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. What were they talking about? They were talking about Jesus' death. They were talking about the fact that he wasn't going to be with them much longer. The fact that Jesus would suffer and die soon. And guess what? This is exactly what Jesus was just teaching his disciples about. This is is what Peter, the man who has just witnessed this and who is now hearing them talk about this, rebuked Jesus for and said, no, Jesus, don't don't say you're going to suffer and die. Moses and Elijah show up and they validate what Jesus has been saying that this is really going to happen, talking about Jesus' coming death. So Jesus, after Peter rebukes him, Jesus rebukes Peter, and then he allows Peter, James, and John to go with him to see his glory and to see these two witnesses who verify that what Jesus is telling them about the future is true. Peter has doubts, and Jesus is helping him with those. He's giving them evidence. But that makes me think of another question. And that question is this, why Moses and Elijah? Why not Adam, the first man? Why not Adam? Why not Abraham, the founder of the nation of Israel, that favored patriarch? Why would he not be the one to show up? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, here's here's why. Moses, from the Jewish mindset, was the, the deliverer, the source of the law. And the law was incredibly important to them. The law of God, it's really, it's often called the law of Moses. If we go back to Malachi chapter four, verse four, we read this. Remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant, all the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. So Moses was the source of the law, very important, the source of truth about God and how God wanted them to live their lives. Elijah was the main prophet for Israel. If we go on to the next verse, verse 5 in Malachi 4 says, Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So these two men, Moses and Elijah, are the human embodiment of how God spoke to the people the law, and the prophets. And that's literally how people referred to this. See, we call it the Old Testament today because we have an Old Testament and we have a New Testament. They didn't need the distinction. They just had the one collection that they called the law and the prophets. They actually had their own distinction there. There's the law and there's the prophets because that's literally what it was for them. When Jesus gave the two greatest commandments to love God and love others, he said this in Matthew twenty two forty. On these two commandments depend all the what? All the what? Just making sure you're all still awake. All the law and the prophets. When Paul goes into a synagogue in Acts 13, they, it says that they have their customary reading of the law and the prophets. These two men spoke for God. They're the human embodiment of the law and the prophets. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Read on in Mark 9, verse 5. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, 
It's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials. Can you imagine how excited he was? Like, all these two guys are here. Let's make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he said this because he didn't really know what else to say. For they were all terrified. So there's another question that I have. What's up with the shelters? I mean, seriously. Why at this point, there's so much about this story that's confusing to me. And you read it the first time and you just go, what? What's going on here? Three shelters for you. These two guys, they just showed up in glory out of, out of thin air. Why do they need shelters? What is Peter thinking? I'll tell you what I think he's thinking, but we have to go to Luke again to figure this out. Luke chapter 9 gives us a little more insight. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make these three shelters. Here's the key. As Moses and Elijah were leaving, and I don't know if this is for certain, because this isn't exactly what the text says, but I think this is in here for a reason. They are about to leave. Moses and Elijah were on Peter's boyhood baseball cards. These were the two guys, the main guys, the law and the prophets. They spoke for God. They were the source of truth about God. This is where you got information about God. This is where you learned how God wanted you to live. These two guys, I have so many questions. Can you imagine if you had them in front of you and they're talking with someone else. And they turn around and they start to leave. And Peter, not even knowing what to do because he's so scared, but he doesn't want these guys to leave. He just says, let us make some tents for you. In other words, I don't think he wanted them to go. I think he wanted them to stay there. I think he probably wanted to have a little conversation with them too. And so Peter has this wrestling, this inner turmoil that he's struggling with. And he blurts this out. And then look at verse 7 of Mark 9. Then a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. When I read this, my first tendency is to read it as, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. You know what I think it was? This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Here's why. As I'm studying these passages, I'm always asking questions, right? That's what, that's what I'm doing. And there are three questions that are my, my favorite questions to ask. They're why questions. So I'm going to give them to you here. The number one question is, why did this happen? I want to know as I'm reading the text, why did this thing happen? And I'm wondering that about the transfiguration here. My second question is, why did this happen this way? So why did this happen? Why did this happen this way? And my third question is, why was this written down? Why this temporary transformation of Jesus? He didn't stay that way. No one saw his glory after this. It was temporary. It happened up on the mountain. In fact, as they're traveling down the mountain in a little bit, we'll see, he makes Peter, James, and John sign a non-disclosure agreement. He says, don't tell anyone about what you just experienced. You're supposed to keep it to yourselves until after I rise from the dead. Why? Why, why, why? Why did this happen? Why this temporary thing? Why is it recorded for us? And I think there are two key reasons and I hope it's gonna tie all this together for you because I know I've left some loose ends out there. Two key reasons for why this happened, why it happened this way and why it's recorded for us. The first one is theological and the second one is practical. Theologically, 
This moment of transfiguration represents a handoff between the law and the prophets represented by Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Moses and Elijah were the source of truth about God. And Peter tries to get these old testimonies about God to stay. And God interrupts him. Matthew and Luke actually tell us that God literally interrupted Peter while he was still talking. While he was still talking, God interrupted him and said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. This was a significant theological moment. This was a heavenly ceremony that Peter and James and John got to witness firsthand. It's kind of a turning point in how God interacts with people. The author of Hebrews actually talks about this. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read this in verse 1. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, he created the universe. Notice he didn't say that he created the Son. It says the Son was involved in creating the universe. And verse 3 says the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. He's talking about Jesus here. And when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down, again, Jesus, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Why is this description in here? Why am I talking about this this morning? Because Jesus is God and Jesus radiates God's own glory, the author of Hebrews says. And these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were privileged enough to be invited to come see a glimpse of that, to see a glimpse of Jesus, the Son of God, who is God, his glory, and witness that on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's a glorious transformation, not only of Jesus to reveal his temporary glory, but also a transformation in how these men get truth about God. Because up until this point, they're still wrestling with who is Jesus exactly, and they've kind of figured out he's the Messiah, but they're not sure what to do with that. And Jesus is trying to teach them and help them to understand more clearly. And now there is a heavenly handoff between the source of truth about God from the law and the prophets who have now showed up in personal form and validated what Jesus is saying to Jesus. Now Jesus is the source of truth about God. Jesus is now where we get new revelation about God. And Jesus is not just a teacher who is explaining the law and the prophets, who many, most people, that's what they thought he was doing, even the disciples. He's teaching us the law and the prophets and interpreting them in great ways. No, he is bringing new revelation about God. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, in the past, he spoke through the prophets. Now he is speaking through his son. And that is why I believe God speaks from heaven and says, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Not Moses, not Elijah. Don't try to get them to stick around. They are the prophets, not invalidated, not unimportant, but you've got the son of God with you. Listen to him. And now they could begin to see that Jesus literally spoke for God. He was the source of truth about God. He wasn't just interpreting the law and the prophets. He was giving new revelation about God. That's the theological significance of this story. But what about the practical significance? Read on in verse 8 with me of Mark 9. Suddenly, 
when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. You see, Moses and Elijah had served their purpose. They weren't needed there anymore. They validated Jesus. They demonstrated that what Jesus was saying was true. They talked about what he was about to do, the fact that he would die and leave this earth. Jesus, as he's coming down the mountain, we can assume, transforms back into his normal appearance because he tells the disciples not to tell anyone what had happened. And it wouldn't make a lot of sense to do that if he then stayed in that state. Other people would have seen that. And so Jesus tells them not to tell anyone until he rises from the dead. And why not? Well, probably because, first of all, many people just wouldn't have believed it. And of the disciples, if they believed it, they probably would have been very jealous. Why did these three guys get to go and observe this and not me? And so there was really no point in anyone else knowing about this yet. In fact, these three men, Peter, James, and John, are not going to understand the significance of this for a long time. So then, what's the point? Why? Why did this happen? Why this temporary transformation? Okay, there's theological significance there. Why did Peter, James, and John get to see this? Why were they allowed in? And and here's why I think this happened. Here's, Here's why. It's not for now, it's for later. This didn't happen for Peter, James, and John for now, it happened for later. Because when it comes to doubt, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. When it comes to doubt, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. These men weren't seeing this so they could understand it all now. They were seeing this so they could have confidence later. You may not understand what you're going through now, but what God is doing in your life helps you to have confidence later. These men questioned this for a long time. We see that as we read on in the passage. They didn't understand what all had gone on. They wrestled with things for a long time here. This wasn't an experience for now. This was for later. And how I know that is because I decided to go looking. When I had this question, why, why, why? I thought, I wonder if any of these men wrote about this experience later in life. I wonder if anybody referred back to this and gave any insight into what their thoughts were looking back. And Peter did. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this. For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And if that last part sounds unfamiliar to you, it's because Matthew records that. Mark does not. But that is something that Matthew records at that point as well. This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. Is what Matthew says. We ourselves, Peter says, heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the Christ and Christ, the morning star shines in your hearts. Do you see the incredible significance of that experience to Peter? He had no idea in that moment 
what that meant. He had no idea how that was going to come back to play a huge influence in his life. And yet now later in his life, he's writing to other believers and he says, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence, not just in Jesus, not just in God. This is important. We have confidence in the prophets. Isn't that interesting? Because the prophets wrote about Jesus. The prophets prophesied about Jesus. And what Peter is saying, I don't just have confidence in Jesus and God, I have confidence in his word. I have confidence in the things that were written down for us. We have greater confidence because of that experience. Moses, Elijah, witnesses the law and the prophets validating Jesus. And it didn't make sense in the moment but it makes sense to Peter now. And instead of doubting, although he struggled with doubt later on, no question, but instead of doubting at this point, he points back to this experience and says, because of that, we have great confidence. When it comes to doubt, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I want us to take a step back from this text as we wrap up this morning and think about our lives, I've got a couple of practical points that I think we can glean from this and learn from it. Here's the paradox of the Christian life. If you're a follower of God, this is a paradox for for all of us. When things are going well, when life is good, when God has blessed, when life is easy, when everything's working as it should, that is, is when we often tend to slip in our relationship with God. God is blessed, things are good, we're not experiencing spiritual drought, and then we start to coast in our relationship with God. We can become spiritual bums. We can stop being as intentional in our praying. We stop being as intentional in getting into God's word. We stop being as intentional in gathering with other believers. And we talk about sports and the weather and shopping and everything else that's going on in our lives instead of what God's teaching us lately, because we're not really wrestling with that. And the paradox is that in the good times, when we should be preparing and building a foundation for future struggles, we tend to coast and we get lax and we don't invest in our relationship with God. And then when challenge comes, when our faith is rocked, when temptation hits us, we aren't prepared. And we struggle with doubt 10 times harder because we did not have the foundation prepared to weather the storm. And here's what I want to suggest to you as we close today. We wrestle with doubt in challenging times, not just because of our current situation, but usually because of what we weren't doing before. We wrestle with doubt in challenging times, not just because of what we're going through now, but usually because as a direct result of what we were not doing and investing in our relationship with God before. That's a powerful thought. That's a convicting thought for me, and I hope it is for you. If you're not wrestling with doubt right now, now is the time to be building such a strong relationship with God through the reading of his word, through spending time in prayer, through connecting with other believers and growing together and talking about what he's doing in our lives, that when challenging situations hit, we are prepared to weather that storm so that we can say like Peter, we have confidence in God because of what has happened before, because of what we've experienced with him, because of how close we've grown to him. Now is the time to prepare 
and build your faith for when doubt comes. Jesus prepared Peter, James, and John for a bumpy road ahead. He got them ready for it. And God wants us to prepare and wants to help us to prepare. Here's the thing about God. God wants to be the king of your heart, not just on the difficult days. And we run to him on the difficult days. But what are we doing now to build that relationship so that when the crisis hits, when our marriage is in trouble, when we lose our job, when our kids are doing crazy stuff that we don't understand, when someone does something that hurts us, when we lose a loved one, what are we doing now when those things aren't happening to prepare for when they will? When we struggle with doubt, it's not just because of the challenges around us now. It's because of what we weren't doing to prepare and build our foundation. Now, next week, we're going to talk more about doubt. So if you leave here today thinking, but there's more we need to get into, we're going to. That's next week. Let's close in prayer, and we're going to sing one more song together and worship God together. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we are so thankful that you have included stories in your word about people who doubt Because I struggle with doubt. And I'm sure everyone here struggles with doubt. Peter, this great man of God, this rock of the church, this great Christian leader who followed after you, he struggled with so much doubt. And yet you continued to work on him. You continued to invest in him and you allowed him to experience some things that he didn't understand in the moment, but that later on in his life he would point back to and say, because of that, I have greater confidence in God. And so Lord, that is my prayer for us today. I pray that you would help us to be intentional in our walk with you and our relationship with you, growing that strong to prepare for the doubts that will come ahead, the challenges that we will face down the road. And I pray that you would help us to have those experiences with you where we grow grow close, where you draw us close to where we can point to that and say, I know, I have faith, I believe, I can trust because of that foundational walk with you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.